because we're in a sermon series on Mark. We have invited a New Testament scholar who has written on the Gospel of Mark. Her dissertation was on the Gospel of Mark. I wrote a wonderful commentary on the Gospel of Mark. And so we welcome him to come to preach the sermon I wrote for him on the Gospel of Mark. <laughs> Not true. Um, if you want to know about why he's qualified to be here, there is autobiographical information about his training and background that is in the bulletin. But I just want to tell you that the three ministers who are here are all alumni of the seminary that he now serves as president, a Union Presbyterian Seminary. And we are all grateful for him, for under his tenure, under his leadership, the seminary has become more financially strong. It has evolved in the ways that it builds theologians and pastors and community leaders. The extension in Charlotte, where students commute and attend on weekends, including two of our own members, that extension has grown and is serving a real purpose. He has shepherded the seminary through the pandemic. He has been active in helping to promote and raise funds that will honor our former pastor, William R. Klein, and the Leadership Institute. And I really appreciate the wonderful way that you have engaged with alumni, appreciate his scholarship and his ability to proclaim the gospel, of which you will see an example when he offers a sermon that takes seriously the words that speak to the core of what it is meant to be Jewish and Christian all our history. Brian, welcome. Good morning. It is uh, nice to feel so welcome uh, this morning. It is a delight to be here with you, especially seeing such good friends in ministry together. And also um, to think about the continuing partnership and relationship that Second Presbyterian Church has had over the decades with Union, now Presbyterian Seminary. I want to thank you for that partnership it has been a joy to be a part of that. I also, um, as I think today about um, the text that we're working with, as George said, the Gospel of Mark is close to me. It's my favorite text in all of the biblical materials. I spent my um, foundational time, as he said, um, as I was doing my doctoral work in the Gospel of Mark and have continued to work a tremendous amount in it. So it's always a gift for me to be able to preach on this text. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Gracious God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The text we are looking at this morning is Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 28. It is a part of what is called a controversy cycle of stories in the Gospel of Mark. There are two controversy cycles. The first is back in chapters 1 and 2, and then there is this one um, that encompasses chapter 12, where Jesus is engaged in conflict and debate with leaders of the people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and others who are challenging his ministry and his reputation and his status with God. So this is one of those texts, and it's following an argument about whether or not there is actually a heaven. The Sadducees don't believe in heaven, don't believe in an afterlife, and they've just been fussing with Jesus about this. And then just as that argument is probably reaching a climactic point, something else happens. And this text is the something else. Let us listen for God's word to us. And one of the scribes came near and heard Jesus and the Sadducees disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked, Which commandment 
is the first of all. Jesus answered, the first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and beside him there is no other, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. This is much more important than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared ask Jesus any question. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tina Turner, 1984, her fifth solo album. A song on the album caught my attention. I was a young pastor, idealistic. Only three years earlier, I had graduated from seminary. And I thought I could change the world. I crafted every sermon, planned every discipleship moment of teaching and mission with the intention of lighting heaven's flame beneath those two cool Christians under my charge. I was searching. I wanted to know how to fire up the faithful. How to get people to move for God, to care for one another. Like the scribe in this story, I already knew the answer. I knew what God wanted. It was right there in the teachings of the Old and the New Testament. Whether speaking it to Moses on Mount Sinai or living it out through Jesus in Galilee, God told us what God wanted from us, love for God and for each other. In a song on her fifth solo album, Tina Turner begged to differ about love. Before she turned solo, Tina Turner was part of a husband and wife duo, Ike and Tina Turner. Marriage is, or at least it should be, all about love. Watching her, hearing her sing that song at a concert in Hampton, Virginia in 1985, I wondered whether love possessed the transformational power for good that it promised. Whether in marriage or in faith, her song made me wonder, was love really the answer? You must understand, though the touch of your hand makes my pulse react, that it's only the thrill of boy meeting girl. Opposites attract. It's physical, only logical. You must Try to ignore that it means more than that. What's love got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? What's love got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? Enter a scribe, breaking in on a scene of verbal combat. Jesus in the middle of a live fire exercise. 
Sadducees this time pummeling him with what they thought was a trick question that would force him to admit that all his talk about eternal life was sheer nonsense. Look here, Jesus. Think about how stupid this whole life after death thing is, man. There's no logic to it. Jesus, as he often does, listens quietly to his opponents. Jesus, let's play out a little situation. Man marries a woman, loves her, cares for her, but he dies early, tragically. Turns out the man had six brothers. She marries one of them. He dies. She marries another one of the brothers. He dies. And this keeps happening, Jesus, until she's married all seven young men. When she finally dies and gets to your so-called heaven, to which brother is the woman married? For all of eternity, which brother does she love? What does love have to do with it? I suppose Jesus could have answered that way at first. The woman probably would not have married out of love, but out of a need to find protection with a husband. An unmarried woman in that world was vulnerable. More than that, though, Jesus focuses them away from the idea of love as they understand it. Heaven doesn't look like earth. Relationships in heaven aren't like relationships on earth. Love there is not like love here, but love endures because we endure. How does Jesus know? Because God is a God of the living and not a God of the dead. God won't let God's people die, not forever. And that means God's people live forever with God. So what's love got to do with it? And before the Sadducees can respond, and I'm pretty sure they were getting ready to respond, a scribe who is standing by surges into the conversation with the question he already knows the answer to. Feels like a trap to me. Nowhere in the Gospel of Mark have scribes been friends of Jesus. In fact, they've actually been trying their very best to break Jesus, to demonstrate to the crowds that Jesus is not the person he claims to be God's messianic representative. When Jesus forgives the sins of a paralyzed man, the scribes charge him with blasphemy. It is the scribes who are outraged that Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. The scribes say that Jesus is possessed by Satan, and that's how he manages all these miracles. The scribes allege that Jesus does not have his disciples follow the traditions of the elders. And when Jesus predicts his death three times, he says that he will be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. After Jesus cleansed the temple, the scribes conspired with the chief priest to try to do away with him. And when Jesus enters Jerusalem, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes come and ask Jesus who gave him the authority to do all the crazy things he's doing. I think you get the point. The scribes do not care for Jesus. The scribes seem to go out of their way to hurt Jesus and discredit Jesus's ministry. The scribes partner with the chief priests and the elders to try to destroy Jesus. So in this moment, when a scribe tries to wrestle his way into a verbal fight with Jesus by opening up a new battlefront, if I were Jesus, I'd be suspicious. Which commandment is above everything else? That's the question he asked Jesus. 
They were just talking about a woman married to seven men and which man she would be married to in heaven. How do we get from there to here? Has the scribe been holding on to this question for just the right moment when Jesus was distracted by something else when he wouldn't be able to properly focus? Woman, seven men married on earth in heaven makes no sense. Doesn't that mean there is no heaven? God of the living, not of the dead. Love looks really different in the angels. Hey, Jesus, let's talk about love then. I've got a question for you. I know the answer. You know the answer. I want to hear you say it. What commandment is so important that it is more important than anything else to God? Jesus' answer, love, actually. But what's love got to do with anything? How does love help in the world we're living in? Politics of division, what's love got to do with it? The crisis on the southern border, what's love got to do with it? The wars we can't stop fighting, what's love got to do with it? The climate crisis we can't seem to figure out, what's love got to do with it? The epidemics of racism and sexism that seem indestructible and indefatigable, what's love got to do with it? This pandemic whose medical and psychological and death tolls just seem to exacerbate, what's love got to do with it? We are fighting a virus and fighting each other and the world seems to be spiraling out of control. What has love got to do with it? Love has got to do with God. Jesus begins by quoting the famous words of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Love also has got to do with us. Jesus' next quote is Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything in you. Professor Eugene Boring puts it correctly in his commentary on Mark's gospel. He says, one who loves God is to hold nothing back, not to love God with only one part, the religious or the spiritual part of one's being, but with the whole self. Love God with everything you've got inside you and love your neighbor as if she is you. Hold nothing back from her as you hold nothing back from God or from yourself. In the Old Testament, the commandments come separately. Jesus joins them. Says you can't have one without the other. You can't pretend to follow one without following the other. They balance each other, and so they belong together. Boring goes on to say, though they remain two commands, they are for Jesus inseparable. Love of God cannot exist without love for all fellow human beings as its content, and love of humanity cannot exist without love of God as its basis. In other words, trying to love each other without that love being based in the love of God makes love turn on romance or worse, worthiness. We end up needing to earn somebody's love by being beautiful or by being handsome or by being good at something attractive like sports or by being well-to-do financially or by being popular. 
and we figure out how not to love people who are not beautiful and not handsome and not popular and not well-to-do and not good at something all of us value. So if you're not born in my country or you're not born in my race or you're not born of my gender or if you're not born with my financial footing or if you're not able to get beautiful or to get handsome or to get good at something we all value in life, you don't earn our love and thus inclusion in our lives. That is what love looks like when it is based on human attributes and not based in God. God is our creator and thus our great equalizer. We are equal to each other because we have all been equally created by God in God's image. That is the basis upon which we love each other. We love each other because God loves each of us. As we love each other, we love God. As we do not love each other, we do not, we cannot love God. Love in this text, in Jesus' mouth, it's not a noun. It's a verb. It's an action verb. I don't want you to hear the objections about love I want you to hear the affirmations about love. You will love God. I don't want to hear your reasons. You will love your neighbor. It's what we do. It's how we live. It's how we show ourselves to be in relationship with God and others. Love is not a thing that exists between people. Love is a life force. Love moves and love love makes the people it touches move in response. How so? The only time Mark uses the verb for love other than this chapter is chapter 10, verse 12, when Mark says that Jesus loved a rich man because the man had kept all the commandments from his birth. Jesus told this man whom he loved who had kept all the commandments that he lacked one thing, to show love for Jesus and love for the people Jesus loved. Jesus demanded that he give all that he had to the poor and follow Jesus. Love had a demonstrable cost, it seems, dispossessing, sharing, and following. I wonder if it has the same impact here. Today, dispossessing, giving up stuff. In this case, giving up love for oneself by turning love outward first to God and then to others, giving up the desire to build myself up, build my church up, build my school up, build my community up, and figuring out how to build up my neighbor. How to build up my neighbor by sharing the resources that I have. How to follow Jesus? Well, it starts apparently with loving people so much that you would give up focus on yourself to share yourself and what you have with them the way Jesus did. You see, love makes demands, and I mean harsh demands. In the movie Love, actually, Daniel is having a hard time bonding with his 13-year-old stepson, Sam, after the death of his wife, who was Sam's mom. Sam keeps locking himself in his room and not speaking to Daniel. Daniel assumes it's because Sam is grieving and is resentful that he is left with his stepdad instead of his mom. But when Daniel finally gets 13-year-old Sam to sit down and speak with him, Sam's answer is not what Daniel was expecting. Well, Sam tells his stepdad, the truth is, actually, I'm in love. Daniel laughs, 
relieved and amused by the 13-year-old's confession. He thought it was something worse, something real. What can a 13-year-old really know about love? And then Sam responds, what is worse than the total agony of being in love? Being in love is an agonizing, costly endeavor. The sacrifice it demands, the care for the other it demands, the transformation of yourself that it demands, the focus on the other that it demands. Love has everything to do with reshaping and reevaluating, reconstituting, reforming what you once thought you believed, who you once thought you were. To love God is to pull yourself out of your focus on you and what you have and who you are and who is around you to value something bigger than yourself, more than yourself. And then it requires that you treat others with the same ferocious attention and care. The scribe knows believers, though, so right after he affirms Jesus and Jesus has answered that the thing God cares the most about in all of creation is that we love God with everything in us and that we love each other as intensely as we love ourselves, he demands that we not think we can get away with substituting going to worship for extending love. Worship might demand a lot, your time, your devotion, your attendance, but worship is not love. Now, usually Jesus is the one in the stories who has the hard word for the audience to hear. This time it's not Jesus. It's the scribe who agrees with Jesus. It's the scribe who realizes that a lot of believers think they can get away with treating people without love, with hostility, with selfishness, with dismissal, as long as they go to church on Sunday. The scribe realizes that some believers believe that one hour of worship compensates for a whole week of being hateful and selfish and dismissive. Some believers believe that God doesn't care if they act with malice and prejudice and ignorance as long as they put their offering in the plate, stand and sing the hymns, pray the prayers, and affirm the sermon. This doesn't mean worship is not important. That's not what the scribe is saying. The scribe is saying that loving God is more important than even worship could ever be. The point is, we don't just love God when we do worship. That is loving God with our religious and spiritual selves. We must love God with our whole selves. When we show our love of God by how we worship, that's only one part of loving God, the religious and spiritual part. We also show love of God with our emotional, our physical, our social, our economic, even the political parts of our lives. How we treat other people is how we love God. How we create systems that ensure those who cannot protect themselves are protected by laws and institutions is how we love God. How we build financial structures that feed the poor and house the homeless and shatter the structures that impoverish whole classes of people is how we love God. Talking about ways that ensure that people don't work themselves to death and still not have enough money to feed their families is how we love God. How we attack systems that treat people unjustly. How we promote systems that provide opportunity who have traditionally been denied opportunities is how we love God. We cannot love God in here unless we also love God out there. And out there beyond the walls of this sanctuary, outside the time constraints of worship, we can and we must love God. 
In worship, we make love concrete in liturgy, in song, and in sermon. Out there, we make love concrete in sharing, in assisting, in protesting, in helping, in transforming, in sacrificing, in troublemaking, in uplifting. We can raise a glory hallelujah to God here in the sanctuary. We can raise a child up from poverty out there in the world. That's love. We can put money in the offering plate here in the sanctuary. We can offer up our time and our money to people and causes in desperate need of assistance out there in the world. That's love. We can listen to a preacher like me drone on and on in the sanctuary and hopefully not fall asleep. And we can listen to the cries of people in trouble out there in the world and not turn away. That's love. I was suspected of a visitor from outer space arrived and wanted to know what was special about our Christian faith just by looking. We Christians might say worship because that's what we do most often. We worship religiously, right? It's what identifies us. We build great churches and cathedrals and build them into magnificent sanctuaries as repositories for our worship where we do all our modern-day burnt offerings and sacrifices. We call it an offering plate and a digital deposit these days. If we miss worship, we feel kind of guilty. I know I do. For some of us, worship is a mandatory part of our faith relationship with God. What if loving neighbor were as important to us? What if loving neighbor was something we did as religiously as we do worship? That is the scenario the scribe wants his people to think about. That's the scenario Jesus wants his people to think about. It's not worship. It's not preaching. It's not offering. It's not choir singing. It's not liturgy. It's not even beautiful churches and inspiring sanctuaries. Actually, it's love. Amen. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.